In spite of its numerous obvious failures, many 2020 presidential candidates and voters are in favor of a socialist system for the United States. One reason that so many support it is that they misinterpret capitalism. Equip yourself to fight socialism and defend capitalism with the capitalism paradox, how cooperation enables free market competition by Paul Rubin, one of the world's leading experts on cooperative capitalism and professor emeritus of economics at Emory University. In The Capitalism Paradox, Rubin explains that the standard definition of free market capitalism based on unbridled competition is not only an oversimplification but is incredibly misleading. He shows that capitalism exists because human beings have organically developed an elaborate system based on trust and collaboration that allows consumers, producers, distributors, financiers, and the rest of the players in the capitalist system to thrive. Readers will learn how to simply and powerfully explain how we should think about markets, economics, and business, making this book an indispensable tool for understanding and communicating the vast benefits the free market bestows upon societies and individuals. Peter Van Doren, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, says of the capitalism paradox, there is no better way for someone to learn an appreciation for markets, economics, and the positive sum nature of modern life than to read this book by Professor Rubin. The Capitalism Paradox by Paul Rubin is available now from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Please check it out. Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. And we ask you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com and click on podcasts. Find us along with all the other fine quality in our podcast. Please listen, share, and leave reviews for Political Beats. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how the heck are you? I am actually in kind of a tricky situation here, Scott. I uh, got a little bit overenthusiastic about adding rototoms to my drum kit, and uh, <laughs> I just looked around and I realized that I'm trapped. I'm encircled, and I can't get out. Please send help. See if you can grab onto the blocks and use that as like a ladder to perhaps <laughs> propel yourself. Uh, and maybe we'll see. Uh, Jeff's on Twitter at Esoteric CD, and our guest for this fine episode is the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies and Professor of History at Hillsdale College. Hey, I know that place. He's the co-founder of and senior contributor at The Imaginative Conservative, the author of a number of books, including Neil Peart, Cultural Repercussions. You can find him online at bradberzer.com or at Bradley Berzer on Twitter. And uh, appropriately enough, his name is... Dr. Brad Berzer. Brad, thanks <laughs> hey for joining guys. us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's a great honor. We are glad to have you here. Uh, people might uh, might know the band. They certainly do. If they've clicked on the episode before, before we get to the band, please tell us a bit about yourself and how you ended up here at Hillsdale and writing a book about Neil Peart. Yeah, so I've actually been here at Hillsdale now. This is uh, I just finished my 20th year, so I'm in my 21st year, uh, which seems shocking to me, but we arrived here in the summer of 1999. I'm originally a Kansan, and my wife's originally a Texan, but we've been thrilled to be here. This has been great. We've got uh, a lot of kids that are 
now two are at the college, so we're really ensconced here, and uh, it's been wonderful in all kinds of ways. And not least getting to work with, with great people like you. Well, that's not true, but I it appreciate It is very that. true. <laughs> I, even got to, I even got to speak in one of your classes. That was a blast. That was a Twilight Zone class. It was that was great. Fun, yeah. I loved it. Uh, so this is uh, the episode, and, and, and Jeff uh, and I have talked about this. Uh, we're actually a little frightened of this episode because this is a band that we've had so many requests for, and we're doing it under unfortunate circumstances, of course, with the death of Neil Peart. But there are a lot of Rush fans in our Political Beats audience, and we do not want to mess this thing up. <laughs> and uh, for that reason, we actually have a couple of people who wanted to do the show, who, who are not doing the show, sent in some, some thoughts. Uh, Tim Murtaugh, uh, Jeff DeFore, uh, Will Collier, Sean Hackbarth, all huge Rush fans. We're going to let them speak through us during the course of the episode. And of course, Jeff, we brought in this ace guest, uh, Brad Berzer, who literally wrote the book on Neil Peart. It is just a Rush mega fan. And as we begin our journey into the work and music of this Canadian power trio, we turn it back over to Brad Berzer to tell us how you got into Rush, sure, why you love them, and why other people should care. Yeah, it is unfortunate, obviously, because just last Tuesday we lost Neil Peart, and uh, that's that's terrible, especially after he fought so valiantly against cancer over the last three years, though uh, most of us, I certainly had no idea about that, but it sounds like those close to him knew very well that was going on. So really, uh, it's unfortunate, obviously, but uh, it's great that we're able to honor him in this way, and I think he's a person who deserves a lot of honor. He is one of those figures out of the 1970s and 80s all the way up to the present who has always been his own person, no matter what, someone who has never sold his soul, someone who has never compromised, um, and that that's so rare in this world. And to have that example, and then to have not just that, but the fact that he's so excellent at what he does, whether it's with the written word or with the drum, uh, really, really an amazing figure in all kinds of ways. And I, I think he's probably uh, both quietly and not so quietly inspired a generation or two. You know, I, I recently read Will Collier's piece at National review and and what a great tribute to him uh, i've seen lots of people kevin j anderson uh who's a great science fiction writer and was a close friend of neil pert has been posting all kinds of interesting things on Peart. Uh, so we've got a lot of figures steve horowitz out of ball state university just published a great piece uh, either late yesterday or early this morning on bleeding heart libertarian so a, a lot of things coming out right now and it's the right time to do it of course because of neil's passing so nice to see so many people really kind of throwing their support towards the family and uh, towards everything that Rush stood for and stands for. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. You know, as a, as a Rush fan of longstanding, my acquaintance with them begins back in my early childhood days. Now, who, who am I kidding? Obviously, this has been a long-running joke on Twitter. Uh, I, I literally, up until Neil Peart died, I had never heard a single note of Rush's discography. The Not, closest you got to Rush was hearing a uh, stereo from Pavement over and over again. Basically that, yeah. <laughs> what about the voice of Getty Lee? How did it get so high? <laughs> I, um, I, it's one of those things that, that began by accident. Like uh, somewhere, I'm, I'm, I'm a big prog rock fan, so I love Yes and Genesis and King Crimson. Of course, we've done King Crimson on this show already. I uh, love Soft Machine. I even like like really goofy stuff like Renaissance and Marillion. Um, and I have somehow found myself in my mid-20s uh, without a single iota of knowledge of Rush. And at that point, I thought to myself, well, hey, you know what? You know, 
why, why not keep a good thing going here? And so I just decided <laughs> to keep remaining ignorant intentionally at that point, to not get into their stuff. Ah, I'm not going to waste my time. There's too much other good music to listen to in this world. And so it became one of those jokes. And of course, it also allowed me to be like snotty about Rush. Like, ah, Rush is for <laughs> geeks, Rush is for nerds. Well, I, I'm going to give you guys a really big correction today because I finally listened to this band's discography. And I mean, listened hard front to back. And I am really impressed. I'm very critical as well. That's one of the nice things about coming to them without any sort of like long-standing fandom mm -hmm. uh, is that I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I, I could not care less about critical estimations or fan opinions about these things. I just have my own opinions, wildly uninformed opinions, <laughs> but my own opinions are what they are. And so like, I'm probably going to be coming up with a lot of hot takes about a lot of Russia's stuff, particularly, I think, their, their 70s material. I just also want to say that one of the things that you realize uh, when you listen to this band is you absolutely understand why yes. they inspired yeah. so many people and a particular kind of person. Let's be honest. This actually would have been me. If I had found Rush when I was a kid, I probably would have become a Rush super fan <laughs> because they spoke to a certain kind of, let's be honest, a certain kind of like nerdy, intelligent high school kid who's like, you know, probably wasn't really great at football, uh, but really loved <laughs> to play Dungeons and Dragons and hang out like, you know, with the It's Academic team doing Quiz Bowl or, uh, you, know, uh, you know, you know, staying in the basement of the science building doing lab experiments. That was Rush. <laughs> about Rush is this. Okay, first of all, what do they do? They combined instrumental excellence. This is beyond dispute. And of course, you know, I've, I'd heard them. Of course, it's not like I didn't know who this band was. In fact, I'd even read people's reviews of their albums without actually listening to the albums themselves long ago. Um, nobody can really actually overrate the technical excellence of the three members of this band. Getty Lee, vocals. Uh, vocals are disputed. A lot of people have trouble with Getty Lee's vocals. I actually think they're okay, and I think he actually really grew into his voice later on in their career. Mm -hmm. uh, his bass playing, though, is just absolutely peerless. And I also really, really have come to love what he did with synthesizers uh, in the 80s. I think he used them in, a, in an extremely creative way that hasn't really dated that much. And then Alex Lifeson on guitar, man. You know, When they start on that first album, Alex Lifeson just comes right out of the gate, and he's playing Jimmy Page-style riffs, and he's got just furious technical excellence and i think also interesting ideas in terms of riff making and uh and then of course well there's neil peart i mean the he's not on their first album because their their original drummer had to leave because i think he had diabetes or something like that he just couldn't tour with the band um and so in comes neil peart and uh, 
what's the highest tribute you can ever pay to a drummer? And I was thinking about this. I even said it last night. The highest tribute I can pay to Neil Peart as a drummer is one of the very, very, very few drummers that I absolutely do not mind sitting and listening to play a four and a half minute drum solo it doesn't bother me i'm actually thrilled by it there's an example of it on one of their live albums um yyz where it's like how many times can you say that somebody adding a drum solo to a song improves the song well this is one of those times when it happens he's such a masterful craftsman and a technician not even just a technician like you know it's not like carl palmer who can you know hit right. every every note in time you know and, and and you know he can play you know incredibly fast fills and do stuff like that uh here it is creative <clears throat> he plays with technical excellence but it doesn't ever sound soulless As for Neil's lyrics, I think that's the interesting thing. That to me, they start out as I, I would say problematic. I'm not a huge fan of a lot of his early lyrics. I think they're a little bit silly. I think he's trying too hard to be other people, or maybe he's just you know he's a little bit like sort of fresh faced and, and, and gawky, you know, about like yes, let's write about a science fiction you know premise, and then he writes it the way like a high schooler would write a science fiction premise, which is you know not to say not not the way maybe Peter Gabriel would have done it, um, more like the way tony banks would have done it for that matter um but his lyrics actually improved immeasurably throughout the band's career uh, to the point where um by the 1980s he he'd taken a completely different path and was i guess writing about more personal or you know once he ditched the science fiction and fantasy stuff which never really worked for me uh he became such a good lyricist and so so kind of surprisingly frank and open about things he, he he would always tackle things on the nose and when he did that uh, he ended up with results that that really do still stand up like limelight is about as direct mm -hmm. uh uh, a, a discussion of what it feels like to be a guy on stage, a, a, a pop star or a movie star, uh, and to not really feel like you, you know, you, you identify with your audience because it all feels so strange. It doesn't look real to me. It all feels so strange, like Mick Jagger says in Salt of the Earth. Uh, but it's a brilliantly uh, straightforward take on that kind of an issue, which is not the kind of thing that you would have expected from him if you had just started at the beginning of their career. Now, I guess that's where we should start. So I don't want to get into too much prelude because I think we've got a lot of albums to cover here. And where do you begin? You begin with what happens when a Canadian bar band, literally, these guys have been gigging together, I think, since 1968, 69? Yeah, that's right, 68. It, it, 
really honing their chops. And that's the funny thing about Rush. The debut self-titled album, Rush, comes out in 1974. It's uh, self-recorded. I think they released a single in 1973. It's not Fade Away, which is hilarious. Yeah. I, if you've ever heard Rush's <laughs> uh, you know, debut single version of Not Fade Away, it, the funniest part about it is that you know, as high as Geddy Lee's voice is usually criticized for being, he sounds like he is literally a chipmunk on their version of Not Fade Away. <laughs> it's just it's ridiculous. Um, but you have Rush's debut album and of course it was made with their first drummer uh john rootsy and i gotta say and this is one of those things where i'm gonna start hot taking all over the place i think this is a perfectly fine album fans usually dismiss it critics usually dismiss it oh it's too led zeppelin-y it's too derivative of you know their influences they don't really have their haven't found their feet and they would obviously go on to much better stuff but i gotta tell you i kind of like all this silly bluesy stuff i kind of like you know it's hilarious to hear getty lee singing about being in the mood you know (laughs) like you know like getty lee doing like uh, when you you sing with that voice about feeling horny it's just (laughs) it, it it conjures like some hilarious cringe images for me that i do enjoy very much but what do you guys think of that first album oh yeah th- thanks jeff there's so much to respond to i know you just said it's great yeah i mean i'm i i like the led zeppelin aspect of the first album as well uh you know i'm so probably taken with neil peart that I- i'm ready to move on from john rutsey as quickly as possible and that's <laughs> not fair because obviously the band is rooted in that blues rock and especially in that innovative zeppelin style uh and of course there were a lot of bands at the time heart others were deeply influenced by zeppelin and yet then we're, we're going to see when Peart comes in that they're going to take a very different direction. But it, that doesn't mean that the first album doesn't have its excellences. Obviously, Working Man spoke to so many people, not just in Cleveland, but elsewhere in North America at the time, and really did give them a kind of a power that most rock bands at the time, especially that young, really did not have. One single, and I, you know, even uh, when I listen, and I, I went back after I, I was getting your emails over the last week, and I listened to all the world's a stage, and yeah, I had to laugh when I was hearing in the mood. But you know, it's it's also, and not to put down John Rutsey, the guy had some real talent, and I think he he had a lot of personality, kind of helping lead the band early on. But you know, when you listen to the versions that Neil Peart's drumming on of Working Man and In the Mood versus the original, you can really tell that there's. <laughs> There's a difference in quality there. Uh, pretty serious difference. Uh, much like Jeff uh, has never heard a Rush song before before prepping for this show, um, I'm going to just go ahead and admit I've never heard all of Working Man because Working Man <laughs> is the go-to, was the go-to 
I need to use the bathroom song when I was a uh, college uh, DJ playing music. And so I, I heard the beginning, and I heard the end, but that middle six or so. The middle section is when you're in the John. I'm a little fuzzy on exactly how that went. So I don't want to say too much about Working Man. Um, it's per- there's perfectly good stuff here. You know, uh, finding that riff and riding it, like uh, finding my way and, and what you're doing. Um, that, you know, it's an Alex Lifeson riff that they find and work and repeat and get to the end of the song. Um, you know, finding my way that that it's almost like a dirty. Uh, I know there's a lot of Zeppelin comparison. It's like a dirty Joe Perry Aerosmith riff on on finding my way. <laughs> What you're doing, pretty decent. Um, but the lyrics, yes, could you need some uh, need some work, need some love. With uh, I'm running here, I'm running there, I'm looking for a girl. Uh, <laughs> they would get a little deeper uh, just a year later on Fly By Night. Well, I don't know if deeper is necessarily a good thing in this case because here's <laughs> the thing about Neil's early lyrics. I have to say, I'm not always really sold by them. I'm I'm not. It's not that I object to like, you know, Ayn Rand. Uh, being incorporated into my rock music. I'm not a fan of Ayn Rand at all. But, uh, you know, hey, listen, you, you put any kind of philosophy into music. If you sell it well enough, I'm not going to mind. I like the clash. They're trying to sell me communism. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I really don't care about it in that way. But his earlier stuff is clunky. Uh, and yet, however, the band is completely transformed. Not completely transformed. You still feel a lot of the hard rock Zeppelin-esque stuff on Fly By Night, their second album. But first things first, this is actually a fantastically produced album. I love the way the band sounds on it. They actually pull off that hard rock sound, and they actually come up with some really, really amazing, and also, I think to my mind, very poppy uh, tracks, like Anthem, yes, based on the the really terrible Ayn Rand novel, a short story, I believe, Um, and... uh, it's got one of the most nagging hooks that Getty Lee ever sung during Rush's early years. The I can't even try to imitate his. <laughs> Actually, voice. that was pretty good. Not bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs>
he's like shrieking like Robert Plant, you know, who's being fed into a wood chipper at the same time. And it's it's really good. And the ensemble suddenly feels so much more assured with, I guess, what you, the dynamism that Peart is bringing to the song. And, and then there's so many other things on this album that also hold up. They're all hard rock. All the hard rock moments really work for me. So like, was it Beneath, Between, that's, and Behind? Oh, yeah, that's absolutely. a great song. Amazing song. Oh, that's a fantastic song. Fly by night. That's like that's a pop song, man. I mean, it's 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 a complete pop song that works in every way. that doesn't work a Rivendell song you know it's a nice idea right. but it goes on for like five minutes and it's just too dang long without really varying or changing itself and of course I, I, I don't know if you guys want to make a defense of this but we cannot leave Fly By Night without discussing Bitor and the Snow Dog uh, I remember when I was started getting into them last week, getting into this discography, I literally thought to myself, like, oh, crap, I got to get into a band that writes a song called Bitor and the Snow Dog. Um, apparently, it's an in-joke. They had, like, two dogs that their manager owned. One of them was a biter, and one of them was a snow dog. And so then they decided, hey, let's make this some sort of, like, weird uh, you know, Norse myth kind of a thing. Um, this, to me, by the way, it shows up what I think the big weaknesses in early Rush's attempts to be a prog rock band are. And this is a criticism I have of them. They're really good at coming up with like interesting and fun little riffs, uh, catchy little ideas. Uh, but they just sort of string them together serially. Uh, there's no sense of uh, there's no sense of the kind of compositional sophistication that you get from Genesis or Yes on something like Supper's Ready or Close to the Edge or, or Jethro Tull on Thick as a Brick. It's just like, okay, here are seven ideas presented to you in a row. Hope you like them. And in fact, like the, the other hallmark of Rush's prog stuff during this year is that there's always these pauses between sections of the songs. Mm -hmm. They literally just like stop, 
and then they start again with another part that's just unrelated to the other part. And so it, it kind of makes it so obvious, like, you know, where the cement and the glue is going, the grouting of these pieces are. Uh, it feels very unnatural to me. It feels very halting. And it's something they would get a lot better at. But I, it's it's something that they never quite mastered. So I've always I so I, I I've always been feeling as I listen to this stuff, uh, pretty ambivalent about their early prog era, which begins here. Yeah, I don't disagree, Jeff. And I think especially when you compare it to someone like Genesis, Genesis has such a, a more mature style at that point. But I, I think it's worth remembering that Rush, of course, has almost no musical training. I mean, these are guys who are jamming. And you have people like Genesis who've come out of very elite private schools and they have church right. music and they have, you know, there are a number of things that they bring to it. And I, I think it is the difference. And they also had their very awkward early age as well, but they were just lucky enough to not have it be recorded. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, I think there's a huge change between Fly By Night and Caress of Steel. I think on Caress of Steel, they are starting to sound a lot proggier and a lot more coherent and cohesive. Um, it's not just one idea after another, but I think they're stringing them together. Granted, maybe some of the lyrical content is a little weak, but you know, Pierce Young, and that you know, that's really his first album, Fly By Night. And you know, they're trying, I think. I think they're trying a lot. And we'll see, by the time we get into their concerts, by 1978-79, you know, they're now masters of the segue in ways they were <laughs> terrible at earlier on so they're going to grow very quickly here and uh brad mentioned caress of steel which is the next album and, and jeff really hit the highlights of fly by night for me i mean anthem beneath between and behind um just just to kind of amplify jeff's point very quickly someone had asked me earlier today you know uh, rush episode what are your what are your hot takes what are you going to say I, I was thinking i'm like well i mean in a way rush is exactly if you didn't know rush they, they're exactly what you the perception you have of them and yet they're not um, to that end, yes, they are, uh, you know, they wrote long 20-minute songs about, you know, Greek gods and things. Yes, yeah, so that's Rush. But at the same time, as Jeff said, they're not really masters of, like, the concept album. And try as they might, or, or, or they, didn't, they did not have to try to write accessible songs. Um, even some of their really long suites of songs um, have, have hooks. You know, they're, they're writing with a listener in mind, I guess. They're, you know, these songs, you're able to, to grab them and bite into them, even if you're not taking in sort of the, the ambient story or, or all these things going on. So, you know, in that way, yes, they are what you thought they were, and but they're not. And there's actually one point I'll save for a few albums to come, which I was most surprised by, really digging into the discography one by one. I'll save that for a bit, but we can talk uh, Caressive Steel. Uh, my comment on the, on the name of this album was I, I thought that perhaps it would be best served as like the follow-up for uh, to Alice Cooper's Zipper Catches Skin. It has just a very <laughs> odd phrasing, Caress of Steel. Uh, steel, I mean, Steel doesn't really caress you, I doubt that. So, <laughs> uh, it, 1975, they had opened, you know, they're already touring. They're already on the road. They're already playing uh, the U.S., Kiss, Aerosmith, Blue Oyster Cult. They're opening for all these bands. And and then Caress of Steel comes next, and it kind of was met with a thud uh, commercially. Uh, the record label wasn't happy. Uh, there wasn't a lot of sales happening with uh, with a with an album like Caress of Steel. And I kind of understand. Uh, this is not, um, I, I think, a highlight of of the early years uh, of Rush. Uh, Bastille Day, that that first song, continues that that Zeppelin sized riff. 
Um, and the storytelling, uh, this, the beginning of the French Revolution. Yeah. Uh, Bastille Day. Lakeside Park, I think, is a lot better on the live album, All the World's a Stage, but it's 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 kind of a more of a laid back. There's a bit of a sweetness to Lakeside Park that would perhaps remain hidden for a while uh, in, in the songwriting of Neil Peart and, and Rush. Two really long songs, uh, 12 and a half minutes and 20, 20 minutes to close things off. Some, some narration over the beginning of one of those tracks. Oh, my tracks. God. The, 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 the whole, like... Yeah, dab deep voice like you know i don't know how they did obviously electronically modified narration is so pretentious it's just that <laughs> it's that moment it's 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 that spinal tap moment in early rush you know it's just hilarious and i don't know i i can't listen to it without laughing i guess you know maybe maybe if i was smoking an awful lot of weed back in 1975 i might have felt differently but yeah, it's hard to take now. And I, I think they were doing a little bit of that as well, John. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure there were. I mean, I, I, I've listened to Passage to Bangkok. So, um, you know, the thing about Rush uh, during this era, and I'll say this, this is a perfect time to apply my hot take, is that every one of these albums that has a side-long song, the rule, and it always is correct, is that it's the other side of the album that's better. Um, that, that the ones with the shorter songs and the smaller songs is better. So this one has that that fountain of lamneth thing on side two and again there are some interesting riffs in there there's some interesting music in there the uh the the lyrical message neil is is out in fantasy world it just doesn't it doesn't work for me in the slightest i'd never even liked it when genesis did this sort of stuff you know like on white mountain and things like that uh but yeah bastille day and lakeside park those are fantastic fantastic records they're some of the best uh early music from this band's career and it's funny to me because they uh, you, what, I know the band doesn't like Lakeside Park they was, I think I saw read a quote where Getty Lee just like says I cringe every time I hear Lakeside Park on the radio and I think it's terrible and I'm like wait what's your problem with that I think it's a fine song
But, you know, it, this is the album that put them on the block, the chopping block. And if, if not for what comes next, the, we wouldn't be talking about this band because, you know, of course, here's the funny thing. All of the Rush superfans are going to tell you that, hey, what's well, a definitive Rush album, one of the key documents of their career, something you absolutely have to know. It's 2112. I don't really care that much for this album, and I do not care very much for the title track, the, oh, the big, big sweet. I know. Listen, listen. It's it's a lot better on all the worlds of stage. I'll grant you because they edit out huge chunks of the boring stuff. But um, <laughs> the second half of this album, I think, is wonderful. I really do. Really like you know tears, which is like the last lyric that Getty Lee ever wrote or close to right. it. I like something for nothing. There, you know. Listen, if you're going to smuggle in your libertarian views into music, something for nothing really works well with that. Bangkok is great. Twilight Zone is so stupid that it's fun. Like, you know, his idea of like what weird things are in the Twilight Zone is, is almost so pedestrian <laughs> that you've got to laugh, right? But I've just never been able to get into 2112. And if you guys have been, please explain to me why I'm wrong. Oh, well, I, I <laughs> Jeff, I, I love 2112. And uh, it's just one of those, those songs that just seems so victorious and so triumphal in so many ways. And I suppose that it could be seen as cheesy. Uh, but for me, it's just a song of victory every time I hear it. And... You commit suicide at the end. Come on. I mean, by the way, <laughs> that, again, talking about, about like silly narrator things, like at the end, it's like, what is like, like, we are coming to back to take over the galactic, you know. No, we have assumed control, control. right? <laughs> we have assumed control, right? It's, it's so cheesy. I think it's great. That's I, just why kids loved Rush, because, like, that was, like, exactly what, like, like a 17-year-old would write in, like, oh, I'm going to be a short story writer. That's that's the both the, the funny thing and also maybe the problem with Neil Peart's early lyrics is stuff like that. Yeah, I like Side 2 as well. I mean, I think it's a great album, and I, I would agree. Twilight Zone is not their best song, but you also, we didn't mention on the previous one on Caress of Steel, I think I'm going bald. Uh, I think that may be <laughs> Russia's worst song. Uh, but, you know, I mean, again, we've got a lot of things going on here, and I think that, that we're seeing a lot of evolution on the part of Rush. And I think 2112, because it was so important to so many people, it really does. It, it becomes definitive historically, even if it's not definitive musically. I, uh, I would always... Uh, hope for a uh, first quarter, early second quarter basketball score of 21 to 12 when I was calling high school games in a uh, previous life because then I'd be able to whip out, you know, 
Boylan leads 21-12. That's Russia's favorite score. Um, I sneak it into things too. Yeah. Papers, books. Uh, I, I agree and disagree with Jeff in that I do think in many places that the, the longer suites, the longer sides are not as good, but th- not in this case. I, I really love 21-12. Is is linear enough? You can follow it through uh, from from start to end. Um, you know, I, I think each of the of the again, of the it, it's written so literally. It's not like a Peter Gabriel like yeah. selling England by the pound epic, like something like Dancing with the Moonlit Night or even the Battle of Epping Forest. It's written so um, on the nose. Mm. So incredibly on the nose, it has that, like, again, this is the thing about Peart. He gets so much better as a lyricist, but it is kind of funny to go back and listen to this early <laughs> stuff. And he really does seem like like a really, you know, an ambitious uh, and precocious, but not very experienced kid trying to write science fiction. And uh, th- there's something lovable about it, but there's, there are real problems with it, too. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too. At the time, of course, the British press just went wild condemning Peart, not not for bad lyrics, but for fascist lyrics, right? <laughs> so it wasn't that they were poorly written. It was that they were too obviously over-the-top right-wing. Um, and that, that I find that interesting as well, thinking about just how different the British reacted to that album versus North Americans. It's strange because I don't think that... I, the Randian stuff is obviously there in, in the in twenty one twelve. I mean, it's basically it's anthem. It's a rewrite mm-hmm. of anthem right. uh, in the sci fi. That's premise. right, right. right. But like, I mean, what, what's the idea? The idea is that like you know, some guy discovers a, oh, a guitar or yep. something like that. It's so silly. Some guy discovers a, a magical guitar that allows him to make beautiful music, and he presents it to the priests who run the Galactic Empire and thinks that they'll praise him for it. And they're like, no, no, you must be condemned. It's they a waste of pra- time. Right, but that's not, that's not a fascist message. It's just like, you know, like the man is keeping us down is the easy way to interpret that as well. It, 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 you know, something for nothing. You know, when he's talking about, like, freedom ain't free, buddy, you know, like that maybe you could get a, a more clearly right-wing angle out of. I don't even get it out of that. But, like, I guess I don't understand why they hated uh, this stuff so much for any other reason than that he, they knew the inspiration. They knew it was Rand and they knew that they hated it. I mean, what is it? That song is actually dedicated to the genius of Anne Rand. Or is, that's, that's I think, on the album. Is that a liner? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. So, yeah. like, yeah, I, I, they never understood that, that rap on period. And, and I think also, like, you know, they probably later on never forgave him for writing Free Will just by <laughs> saying Free Will, you know, yeah. like, you know, oh, that's a fascist catchphrase. 
it's, is it? I don't know. Apparently, in Britain it is. But nah, I've never understood you know that that angle on disliking his lyrics. I think you can dislike some of his early lyrics because they're just too like gawky and clumsy. <laughs> um, but anyways, like, do you have any th- anybody have any f- final thoughts on twenty one twelve before we move on to the next phase of Rush's career? Yeah, no, I'm with you, Jeff. I think it's ridiculous that those criticisms were brought forward as well, but they were strong and they did stick and they really really did affect Rush. Uh, they were deeply bothered by these criticisms at the yeah, time. I, well, one last thing I want to say before we move on to like part two of Rush is um, one of the things that I discovered when I went back and I started listening to all their stuff is that Rush, uh, and this is going to like make actual longtime Rush fans just laugh like, duh, idiot. <laughs> Rush is an amazing live band. An absolutely amazing live act. They actually managed the very neat trick of uh, making every single one of the songs they play from their studio catalog better when in concert. And the reason I mention this is because the next album they do is uh, just a live release. We don't really have to spend too much time on it, but I would actually strongly recommend it to anybody who isn't already familiar with Rush. If you, Especially this early era of Rush, you want to figure out what it is they're about you want to decide, hey, are these people for me or not? Or at least is this era of the band for me or not? Go get All the World's Stage. I was shocked when I heard this album, when I was going through their discography. I was shocked because I just assumed it would be kind of like a boring and bland, profit-taking move. Uh, (laughs) It is their greatest hits album from this era. They play like four songs from their debut album. They're not they're not discarding it. And Neil is obviously awesome on drums yes. playing stuff that was done when he wasn't even in the band, but they play all of the really cool and and important stuff from their later albums, Fly by Night <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I love how they segue it into In the Mood. So you get you both, you know, uh, sublime pop genius right. and then goofy, goofy <laughs> horniness. Yes. And uh, they even do the wonderful thing where they take 2112 and they cut out all of the boring stuff. <laughs> so you only have to listen to like the stuff that actually where things happen. <laughs> it's cool. And they actually make me like buy tour in the snow dog. Oh, it's which a is great a rendition. It is a it's great a rendition. Miracle. And so I just want to recommend people check out that album in fact i might even say that should be your first stop for early rush because i think it does such a good job of summarizing their career up to that point yes let, let me uh chime in with uh, a contribution from jeff defour who is the editor-in-chief at national journal at dc defour on twitter and was part two of our rolling stones episode a big rush fan he uh wrote about neil peart's drum solos uh saying in the hands of too many drummers a drum solo offers little more than the setup to a punchline or a built-in bathroom break for less committed members of the audience neil peart was not one of those drummers more than 40 years of rush shows or over 40 years of rush shows peart's acolytes learned to return from every bathroom break or beer run long before his appointed solo time typically about two-thirds of the way through the second act after all, it was one of the centerpieces of the show, an eight-minute mix of improvisa- improvisation and composed arrangements that was more than just a, a tour de force. It was a genuine tour of drumming styles. It might start with John Bottom-style bombast before evolving into African-inspired tribal percussion. Then his kit would rotate 180 degrees to usher in the electronic drum section before capping it off with a dr- jazz drumming tribute to his hero, Buddy Rich. If that sounds like an error, it was, to the point that the solos took on various titles. When Peart was approached to perform on Drum Solos Week on The Late Show with David Letterman back in 2001, or 2011, which I missed, he said he recalled thinking it would be an honor to be the ambassador to drum solos. 
Indeed, the very idea of drum solos could have used a few more ambassadors like Neil Peart. That's Jeff DeFore from National Journal. Ladies and gentlemen, the professor on the drum kit. So many people came to us with uh, with with thoughts about Neil Peart and about Rush when we announced we were doing this show. You're going to be hearing a few more of them later on. Of course, the the second chapter of Rush's career, and they they used you know the, the the line on Rush is that they used to sort of like signify that they were moving to a different phase by releasing a live album every four records, you know, like you know, and and now we're moving on. So what's the next record? It is a farewell to Kings. This is 1977. Uh, this is the first Rush album where I'm actually, it's funny because I've, I've been making fun of some of the bad stuff on these albums, but I've actually enjoyed every one of them. This is the one that I enjoy the least. I do not like A Farewell to Kings, and I know I, that puts me in a minority uh, of, I was about to say Rush fans, but since I'm the guy who heard them last <laughs> week, I can't call myself one of those. I kind of am a fan of them. Um, Xanadu is, say this right up front, Xanadu I think is probably the best proggy epic that they ever attempted mm -hmm. it's the one where the the seams show the least the one that impresses me the most it, beautiful flow and, and every kind of i think you can really make an argument for every every note needs to be in that song which is something you can't say about a lot of their earlier stuff And the other one is that I know it's the stupid, sappy pop hit, but yeah, I like Closer to the Heart. I'm sorry about that. I, I apologize in advance. I know a lot of fans hate that song. Um, but man, that Cygnus thing, and Jesus, what they're going to do with it on the next album. Oh my God, it makes me shake my head. Um, that does nothing for me. The whole, like, I'm trying to be Steve Hackett trip on A Farewell to Kings doesn't work for me. Um Cinderella Man feels like they're just covering old ground again, and Magical is a song I can barely remember that even exists. So I know you guys are <laughs> going to tell me that I'm wrong about this. 
let me uh, squeeze in quickly because I actually agree with Jeff, and so I, Brad has to tell us how badly we're wrong. But I agree. This is this is the one uh, the one transition album, so to speak, the one you know that, that starts sort of a new era. That I I feel uh, tentativeness or missteps. Um, you know, Neil Peart's expanding his drum kit, and Alex Leipzig has some interesting non-hard rock kind of non-metal elements entering his his uh, his guitar. Uh, tone and, and technique. There's some, you know, some acoustic interludes and some folk type melodies that don't really work all that well for me. I agree. Xanadu is fantastic. I actually don't mind uh, Cinderella Man either, uh, with those kind of staccato riffs and those acoustic strums. But all in all, I, I was not as impressed with A Farewell to Kings as I think many many Rush fans are which is where Brad's here to tell us why we're wrong. Well, you know, it's interesting. Obviously, there's a, a lot of just personal preference here. For me, I can never really listen to A Farewell uh, without also listening to Hemispheres. I, they, they are two parts of the same album in so many ways to me. Uh, neither of them are extremely long. They're both fairly short albums. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, lot... d- d- for people who don't know, to make clear, like A Farewell to Kings ends with a song that is taken up again at the beginning of hemisphere that's right yeah it's like it's literally like you know you know to be continued it's so yeah there's an absolutely good reason to see them as like two sides of the same book and you know for me i of all the albums if you guys said well we just want you to pick out one great album from the first third of rush's career i would have picked a farewell to kings uh maybe for me it's the one i even listen to it more than 2112 Uh, i go back all the time and listen to a farewell to kings i think there's something lyrically that Neil Peart has achieved. Uh, it's it's still philosophical, but it's not as in your face as it was with 2112. I think there's a maturity to it. Uh, maybe I like the theme. I like the idea of a farewell to Kings. I like the, the cover. We haven't talked about Hugh Syme, who's done a lot of the art, but I think there's some very interesting art going on with this. And one other person we haven't talked about yet, who's really a fourth member of Rush, is uh, Terry Brown. Their producer. Yeah, is their Terry producer, Brown. yeah. I mean, who... Um, you know, his, his brother was Phil Brown, who did Queen and, and uh, Talk Talk later on. And, you know, incredible. Really, both these guys are just incredible producers. And Terry Brand will be with the band until right after Signals mm-hmm. in 1982. So really an important member of that band. But I also think Hugh Syme as the artist is also a, a, a really critical figure as well. But, yeah, I mean, I, I can't it, – it's funny hearing you guys talk about something like A Farewell to Kings because – all of my really close friends and I love that album, yeah. and I've never actually even heard a criticism of it before, <laughs> um, except when I was writing on Peart and I was looking up. Yeah, I mean, then people were very critical at the time, but it's just it's funny to hear from objective uh, objective ears. It's like, yeah, I can see that, and I, you know, for me, it's been with me since I was in high school. So, you know, I'm 52 now. <laughs> this is an album I've been listening to for over 30 years, uh, and it's just kind of a part of who I am. So it's a little hard to be objective. I mean, I think I think one of the things that I do when I listen to a band that I'm unfamiliar with for the show in particular is that I, I, I automatically think to myself when I hear the music, I'm like, well, who does this remind me of? Who are they being influenced by? So, like, you know, I hear Farewell to Kings, the title track. I'm like, oh, that's clearly Genesis. I hear, like, you sure. know, their debut album, Rush. I'm like, well, that's clearly Led Zeppelin. Perhaps that has a tendency to do to, to 
be unfair to the band because all you end up doing is just comparing them to other groups that you were already familiar with and, and obviously you had liked more because you knew all, <laughs> all their stuff before you ever got to this group yeah. um, but there's going to come a moment soon where that actually gets flipped up on its head uh, it's not That's the right. next album but it'll be soon um, the next album of course is is Hemispheres now this one again I <sighs> My rule of thumb, as I said, for Rush is that if they have a sidelong song, go look on the, the other side. All right. <laughs> this this thing, this silly Greek uh, Apollo, Cygnus X1 Book 2 Hemispheres. That's the title track. It's the first half of the album. It's 18 minutes long. Again, there, there are good musical moments on this. I guess I have trouble – this is something I should probably try to conquer. I have such trouble getting over the the, the silliness of the lyrical conceit. Uh, again, you know, you, you are swimming in very deep and very you know tumultuous waters when you try to mess with these ancient uh, tropes, with these 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 deep uh, you know mythological tropes. And I just don't think that Neil was really capable of pulling it off. And then you flip to the other side and you get like, goofy fun stuff like the trees. The trees, of course, is infamous <laughs> for Rush. It's like the most Randian thing ever, right? It's like the, the oaks and the, it was the oaks and the elms are, are going to war with one another because, uh, you know, they can't get enough sunlight. It's, it's very much like, you know, we're going to chop you down with, with, with axe. With um, hatchet, um, axe, and saw. Hatchet, axe, and saw. Right? Yes. Such a such a Randian Randian kind of a thing. It's a very kind of a hair. Also, Harrison Bergeron. Like that's right. Yeah, that's it right. Reminds me of that as well. tell you my favorite song on this is, is the instrumental one at the end mm-hmm. La Villa Strangiato. Oh, of course that's basically perfection <laughs> it's perfection and here's the funny thing they, they subtitled it like what is it an exercise in self-indulgence and i find it to be so much less self-indulgent than all of those prog stuff that they had done up until that point this is a moment where like okay yeah you're just telling us here's a bunch of really cool sounding stuff here's a great series of riffs and actually they finally learn how to reprise themselves and like you recapitulate without sounding like it's ham-handed or forced uh and it's 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 the best 
I don't know if I'll say it's the best instrumental that Rush ever did because there's one coming up a little bit later that that, that competes with it. But my gosh, this is to me the highlight of the record. Yeah, well, they're, they're going to prove that they're extremely good at instrumentals and in concert, especially. Yeah, it's. I don't think uh, Livio Strangiato has ever been done poorly in concert. <laughs> if there was a, a version, I've never heard it. I mean, everyone I've heard has just been outstanding. And uh, you guys may know, and, and you would have to see them live for this to happen, but Alex usually had some kind of crazy story that he <laughs> would tell in the middle of this live, but they wouldn't record it because they were usually very R-rated. <laughs> so on the live versions, those do not appear. you have any thoughts, Scott? Yeah, well, I, I actually want to give thoughts over to another one of our contributors for this episode, uh, Tim Murtaugh. Um, he says he's the biggest Rush fan anywhere in the 2020 campaign. Uh, Rush fan for 38 years, director of communications now for the Trump 2020 campaign, at Tim Murtaugh on Twitter, wrote uh, some very nice words. I want to start here. Uh, Neil Peart was the real reason the band got its hooks in me right away and never let go. The drumming was unparalleled, and the fact that he wrote the lyrics as well just made him even more amazing in my eyes. As a below-average drummer myself with a beat-up set of Slingerlands in my parents' basement, I frequently listened to Rush on headphones and attempted to play along with Peart. I failed miserably and became convinced that no one could match him stroke for stroke. The percussion is the first thing people recognize, of course, because it commands your attention. He practically vomits drums, an old friend once said. But for me, Peart was much more than that. Every song had a message, it seemed, conveyed through his incredible lyrics. Limelight about his own discomfort with fame. 2112 about a totalitarian order of priests who feared individual expression in music. Free will about the conflict between believing in fate versus the freedom of choice. The Trees, from this album, from Hemispheres, was, to me, about the evils of communism. All these wonderful lyrics wove it atop the incredibly complex songs with exotic and changing time signatures made for impossibly unique music that marked Rush and Rush only. No, you can't dance to Rush. And that's just one more reason why they were always the coolest. Tim Murtaugh, Director of Communications for Trump 2020 on Rush. Yeah, uh, no, no, you can't through. do things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so, so, so he, what were you going to say? No, no, no. I was going to say I, I, I echo a lot of what Jeff said about hemispheres and Brad too. It's a, it's a continuation yeah. uh, of the last album, and so for many of the same reasons, I'm not quite so. I, I think I like hemispheres better than farewell. I, I like the trees. I like the instrumental, um, but I'm sort of 
I'm leaning more toward Jeff than, than than you on this particular one. That changes though with with permanent waves. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so like here's the thing: if you had uh, you know cut Russia's career off uh, at hemispheres, I would have said to you like, okay, yeah, you know, okay, this band they have some virtues. They they put out some good songs, could fill out a, a good greatest hits album, but like. Honestly, like they're not the kind of group that I could understand people getting really obsessive about. It's just not for me. It's not my thing. What happens to Rush? And I'm not even sure what it is. It's literally did did Getty Lee buy a synth and just decide I like keyboards? <laughs> uh, because the change in Rush, and it's not just it's not just the synthesizers. It has to be emphasized that what also happens here is that Neil Peart is starting to write a completely different style of lyric. And it works so well for the band. It works so well for the music that they are making. You get permanent waves. And this, to me, uh, inaugurates the era where I actually just said it on Twitter the other day, is that it's comical to me that I could have gone 39 years in my life and I did not hear these next four or five albums. I didn't know a thing about them. And everybody would, would tell me, like, oh, yeah, you know, like, oh, you say you've never heard Rush, but you've heard The Spirit of Radio. You've heard Tom Sawyer. You've heard Free Will and all that. Nope. No, I really somehow magically managed to remain completely ignorant of all of this until now. And I am really happy that I forced myself to actually break my big I won't listen to Rush vow. Because this is an amazing album. This is the album that, to me, redefines their entire legacy. And from this moment going forward, this is the end of the sort of hard prog, um, you know, sidelong songs, mythical conceits, uh, science fiction stuff. Although they're going to do that again in Red Barchetta. Um, you know, this is the beginning of them as, I guess, almost in a way, prog new wave progenitors. And this is the moment where I, I, you, the, the script gets flipped. I, I, I listen to them, and I don't think to myself, oh, well, these guys are obviously been listening to something. You could say, like, uh, you know, they're obviously fans of the police. You definitely get a lot of that. The prog reggae kind of a thing, the vibe that comes in, especially from Neil's drumming. Um, but now I actually think to myself, oh, all those other bands that I used to love were clearly listening to Rush. Yes clearly had to be listening to Rush. Genesis, we're clearly listening to Rush. You can hear it on 90125 by Yes. You can hear it on Abacab. You can hear it on a bunch of different stuff. And this is the moment where they go from being uh, very talented guys who were sort of trailing in the wake of others and sort of you know listening to other people and sort of you know reabsorbing their ideas and their insights into their own music uh, to being guys who had come up with their own style.
And, and it all begins with Spirit of Radio, Free Will, Jacob's Ladder. The first side of Permanent Waves is just amazing. And the best part about this album is that those aren't even the best songs on the record. The best song on this record comes afterwards, comes on the second side. I don't want to say another word until I let you guys have something. Yeah, I, I think it's an album without a flaw. The, the, from the very beginning until the very end, it is just seamless in its excellence. And I think part of it is exactly what you said, Jeff. I mean, Neil's writing has changed here. It's not just that they've added on a kind of a new sound. They've gone from clunky and electronic to very smooth and electronic to angular. And you see that in the lyrics. You see that in the guitar. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of things have changed here. And I, I don't think it's it's just the police. I think that there's an overall new wave feel. Uh, and mm-hmm. of course, they call it permanent waves. <laughs> but you can really sense it in Alex's playing more yeah. than anything else. Yeah. Right, uh, absolutely. He, he's not imitating Hackett anymore. Uh, he is really doing something that I don't think uh, anyone else at the time was doing. Uh, maybe the Cars, strangely enough. I mean, I think there were a few bands, a few early new wave bands that maybe Alex is listening to. But you really do get that sense. And it's also with Peart's lyrics, it's not the kind of in your face Randianism that we were seeing earlier or with Hemispheres, that really in your face Nietzsche. Uh, with, you know, Hemispheres is basically a rewrite of the birth of tragedy. And so you've got all of that where I think Neil's incredibly smart, but is not translating it as well as he could lyrically. Now suddenly there's a confidence and a poetry to his lyrics. I think we're finally starting to hear his voice, mm-hmm. um, not what he thinks we want to hear, but what he actually believes. And Entre new. I mean, that's the song I was re- yes. cryptically referring to earlier. I, I, I am so impressed oh, by that. Oh, it's a beautiful song. song. Absolutely. That, that, you know, those lyrics where he's just saying, like, you know, you know, we're strangers to each yeah. other, right? Uh, you know, what is it, like, full of sliding panels? It's an illusion show. Well-rehearsed routines, or are we playing from the heart? It's hard to know. Um, again, he's so direct, He's so direct. He does not like dance around the no, issue. That's, right. <laughs> that's, 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 that's the Neil Peart uh, trademark is that he just goes head on. You know, you know, you forget metaphor. I mean, except for the trees, I guess that was right. a metaphor. But like th- this is where he gets very straightforward and actually does a really impressive job of it. And that song is so beautiful. I, it's funny. I think they don't did they ever even play that one live i didn't it doesn't show up on any of the live albums that not that i, I I've, not that i know of they should have i think that's that's my favorite song on the album
That's I, a great one. I don't know if it's my favorite of the album, but it is um, one of their best. I mean, it is truly one of their best. And um, everything Jeff said is, is right. And, and, you know, lyrically, you know, the way I'd put it is, is, is he, he seems to feel that it's now okay to simply to simply talk about the important things bluntly. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no need to for metaphor or fantasy. We're going to talk about politics, history, love, but in in my way and the way I want to write things. And we're going to do it, you know, I'm going to do it in the most direct way that I, I know how. Uh, I will a, choose a path that's clear. That's right. I will choose free will. I will choose a purpose clear, indeed, on, on free will. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, my favorite on this album and one of my favorite all-time Rush songs is, is just absolutely Spirit of Radio. Maybe if Rush did a song about teaching history, it would be Bradster. <laughs> I mean, I, I worked in radio. It's it's, it's really my, my whole life. And every term I start by, by, by trying to instill in students uh, what makes radio special, uh, you know, 100 years or so go into it here in America. You can't do much better than the first verse of Spirit of Radio. Mm. Begin the day with a friendly voice. Absolutely. That's what makes radio. A companion someone coming into your house every day. Companion unobtrusive. You know, I can do stuff while I'm listening to you. I can feed the kids. I can take a shower. I can change the oil in the car. Uh, plays the song that's so elusive giving you something you can't get anywhere else whether it is a song or you know you know these days talk radio or an opinion or something that you can't find elsewhere and the magic makes your uh your morning mood setting the day you know um, i always tell you know kids the, the 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 goal is to create radio in which the person in the car can't leave the car until they hear the yes. end of the segment or the end of the story <laughs> right and but the way that just the right song the right segment the right story can put you on the right path that's all in that first verse of spirit of radio uh, the lyrics are great uh that crunch uh, of the band with you know all this technology making modern music um and the way it's also sort of an allegory for the way they dealt with their 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 label you know as you get to the, like the last verse of spirit of radio and yet the uh, musically it's still complex there's still these distinct sections of the song they get, get into that sort of little reggae riff for 20 seconds or so near the end of the song the crowd comes up the concert hall it's just a really really well constructed rock song i mean from start to finish lyrically and and musically and the performance is, is fantastic um so you know for a couple of reasons spirit of radio is my favorite uh, song on this album by far I, 
I would hate to move on to moving pictures before we at least mention the last song on the album too. Uh, Natural I Science. Love oh, that I'm song. glad to hear that. I, that for probably. I actually 20... so somebody placed a bet on Twitter about like what I would what I would think about Rush because you know they knew I was going through yeah. the discography for the first time. It was like Jeff is going to love Natural Science. <laughs> like, yeah, yep, you're right. I love Natural Science. Well, you know it's interesting because it actually has a lot in common with Livia Strangiato. Um, in the way that the, the length of it, the way it's structured, but there's something about the lyrics, which of course the other was an instrumental, but there's something about the lyrics that just work perfectly here on this. I mean, I think Getty really finds his voice, and I also think these are some of Neil's best lyrics. Uh, yeah, I mean, just the, the wheels within wheels in a spiral array, a pattern so grand and complex. You know, and the way that Getty delivers it with such sincerity, I, I think it's a great song in, in every way. One thing that's also worth pointing out is the uh, the change. Uh, this is, I think, the thing to me that is the, the overarching theme of Rush. What they they did as a band, and again, I'm talking about the I'm talking as the guy who found them a week ago. So like, yeah, what the <laughs> hell do I know? But what is fascinating to me about them is what is actually been fascinating to me about, about so many of my other favorite bands, uh, particularly Genesis. Um, is that they changed there, there's such an evolution from them you start in one place you end in another place and it's amazing to imagine the distance that you've traveled in between yet every single evolution feels natural it feels organic it's one of the reasons why talk talk fascinates me in the same way um getty as a singer is getting so much better yes than he used to be like i get it like i'm i'm i'm, I'm a big fan of yes so how the heck can i complain about guys who have like really high squawky <laughs> voices right uh but you know like those early zeppelinisms you know you know the, the rock kind of like screech that he would bring to the early albums i get why it turns people off this and from what comes forward is the moment where uh I don't care if you, you are unfamiliar with Rush and you just think, is that a woman singing? And then you find out later it's actually a guy with a countertenor voice. Uh, I can identify. And <laughs> this is the moment where he masters his second instrument, right? Because, you know, the bass is his first instrument. Uh, his voice is his second instrument. And, of course, then he's about to start taking up in a very 
real way, a third instrument, synthesizers, which kind of brings us to, uh, well, I don't know about you guys. Again, I don't know what Rush fans think. I don't know what the general critical consensus thinks. I'm just a guy who's been hearing this stuff for the first time. Moving Pictures is an album that I am frankly gobsmacked that I did not know of. People were going to tell me online, like, oh, surely you've heard Tom Sawyer. Nope. Guess what? I never heard Tom I, Sawyer. I mean, I know you're not lying, but I still... <laughs> it's played at sporting events. It's played... <laughs> but I believe you. I believe you. I'm, I'm sure... Here's the thing. It's it's like when I would tell people, like, I never heard the Spice Girls or I never heard In Sync. Like, I'm sure it was played at places that I was physically at. Yeah. But like it's, I wasn't listening, you yeah. know. It was just like background music or something like that. I'm like, I I watched, I went to the theaters with my wife and I watched the film I Love You Man, which apparently is entirely based around Rush music. I didn't know it was Rush. <laughs> I I somehow tuned or edited that entire thing out of my life. I come to this album, Moving Pictures, and then I think to myself. This isn't an album where I think, who are they been listening to? This is an album where I think everyone's been listening to them. This is far and away the best album Rush ever did. And I think that the thing that needs to be recognized the most and is just most impressive is that this is a band that moved up and up and up from strength to strength to strength and got better and better throughout their career. How many bands put out their greatest album uh, a full, what, 14? Was it 13, 12 years after they started? This is the band that did that. This is a new kind of music. This is uh, an album that I am so impressed with and I am going to go to bat big league for, as the Trump might say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always refer to it as new wave prog. It, it, it does. I, I agree with you. I think it's a peak for them. And it's not just that, though. When you look at drama from Yes, there's a similar kind of sound, but I think moving pictures is much better. Uh, I mean, there's something in the air at that time. And I think even new wave bands like The Fix were, were sounding. I think, I think there's a lot of commonality in the way that these guys are approaching music. But there's something about the way Rush, along with Terry Brown, just really pushes this forward in 1981. And for me, you know, Jeff and Scott, this, this was, I had never heard of Rush until Moving Pictures. And you know, one of my favorite stories from my own life is that I was in detention in seventh grade. I have no idea what I did. I'm sure I was just talking or something. <laughs> Believe me, this was in a nice suburb of Hutchinson, Kansas. There was nothing we did that was too bad. But I was there with two of my friends, uh, Troy Schwartz and, and Brad Libby. And I had a Duke Genesis button on. And we started talking about Genesis and how great Genesis was. And my, my friend said, well, have you heard the new Rush album? And I said, never, never even heard of Rush. And they started telling me about moving pictures. This would have been March of 1981. And right after, this was seventh grade for me, I, I got on my bike after school and I went down to the music store and I bought the album that night. Uh, and I, I think my life has never quite been the same. <laughs> you know, it just from the moment I, I pulled it out of the sleeve, 
Um, I can still, I can smell it. I can see it. I can see the pictures of the three guys on the album sleeve. Yeah, it just, it means everything to me. This, this is a, and, and every song from yeah. Tom Sawyer all the way to the camera eye to uh, Signals. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, to Vital Signs. Uh, this is just, it's an incredible album and it, it progresses. You know, you think about how heavy Tom Sawyer is to how experimental Vital Signs is, you know, from the first song to the last. Uh, there's a lot going on on this album and there's a lot of intelligence on it. I think Neil Peart said that this is the first Rush album, uh, which goes to, uh, to Jeff's point about it being uh, their own sound. You know, yeah. Brett, the, the last album, uh, he sort of figured out the, the right way he wanted to, to write his lyrics. And this time they get the musicianship exactly right. Yeah. Um, you know, every, everyone except Jeff uh, has heard Tom Sawyer, uh, has air drummed to, to Tom Sawyer, uh, has heard that, that, that menacing wow that, that, that kicks off the song. Limelight, which Jeff mentioned earlier in the show, is just a, a, a tremendous song and, and B, an amazing set of lyrics. Uh, yes, it does deal with uh, Neil Peart's uncomfortable nature, being famous, dealing with fans. But I, I think I've read a lot about Rush the past week. I think it was a quote from Neil, but I also said it was his take on how an extrovert cannot imagine what it's like to be an introvert. Um, cannot imagine not wanting to be around people and, 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 and being drained by the experience of being at a party or if you're an introvert, mm. those things are very, very, the, the song speaks to that very much. So in addition to just the, the, about being a rock star and dealing with fans, but also just how, how tough it can be to be around people sometimes that that's, that's somewhat of what limelight is too. And a great vocal hook in that song from, from, from Getty Lee. <laughs>
Fred Barchetta, fantastic song. I'll go to Will Collier, who wrote a great piece on Neil Peart at nationalreview.com, but he also writes at rivals.com, where he's a sports columnist. He's had things up at Vodka Pundit and, and uh, the Atlanta Journal, Atlanta Journal Constitution and elsewhere. Uh, he writes, uh, let's talk about Red Barchetta. Name me another song that was never a hit single with a zillion weird time signature changes. Oh, it's so good. About yeah. a dystopian future car chase. That has no chorus to speak of, although I will say that dum dum dum. That's dum. a that's a chorus, yeah, a right chorus, there. Right? Yeah. Um, and it, it is probably playing on a radio station somewhere in the world right now. There is no analog to that song anywhere in the rock canon. It's cinematic. I can't believe nobody has made an animated short from it. Lifeson's guitar supplies the sound effects for the movie in your mind. It rocks. The story is clear in your head from the first time you hear it. You can even imagine the credits rolling on the fade out. And what's the greatest tribute you can pay to, to the way Rush has evolved as a band and that way that Neil Peart has evolved as a, as a lyricist is the fact that this is a sci-fi song that doesn't feel awkward. Yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. Red Bart, first of all, I, I have always, uh, I, I, this bugs me for some reason. It's Barchetta. That's how, that's how it should be pronounced in Italian. But, of course, these guys are all Canadians. It's so like <laughs> Barchetta to them. No, it's Red Barchetta. It's like a barca. It's like a little boat, right? Um, but anyway, oh, my God. It, it is a fantastic song. And, and the thing about this album is that Red Barchetta is followed by one of these things that you should think is another uh, mess of self-indulgence, which is YYZ. Hmm. The airport code, I think, for Toronto's airport, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I love this song to death. Yeah. I think the funny thing is, as I said in the beginning of the show, I love it even better when they play it live and, and Neil puts that silly s- s- drum solo in and he, <laughs> he goes from playing all the rototons and, you know, and, 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 and going to use these fast fills on, on, on the... Uh, on the snare, and then boom, he goes, he hits the musical chimes. You know. <laughs>
It's an amazing song, and the whole. You could say that the first half of the album is the most immediately satisfying bite of Rush that you will ever take. But the thing is, is that the second half, I think, is equally well. I really do like how Brad pointed out Vital Science. Vital Science is a weird and experimental thing. But the thing is, is that Rush had, at this point, kind of pushed out into like what they were willing to do. and it, it, it gone through so many different phases that nobody ever thinks about it as being like, oh, well, they're taking chances here. It's just a great proggy new wave song uh, i i'm i'm stunned that i never knew this album before and it, it's kind of embarrassing to me to say it no I, I well again i mean i've grown up with it i i knew it from a month after it came out and it's been a part of my life ever since my kids know it <laughs> they know every note we listen to it when they're in, when we're in the car red barchetta barchetta is uh, probably our favorite driving song. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just you know something that I've grown up with. Very quickly, the uh, the cover right with the with the triple meaning right. Moving pictures. You have you have movers who are who are moving pictures from place you to place. Them. You right. You have uh, you have uh, uh, people who are videotaping them moving pictures, turning it into a moving picture. And you have people weeping at the sight of the moving pictures, meaning the pictures are moving. moving. <laughs> Fabulous. The other thing from this this little era, which I will be kicked if I don't mention, is uh, a song that charted higher than any Rush song on the top forty. The highest charting uh, Rush song is coming next on Signals. But the hey there, hey, yeah. Take Off. Getty Lee <laughs> doing the guest vocals of the Bob and Doug McKenzie song actually went to number 16 on the charts in the U.S., which is Didn't higher than that. any Rush single ever did. <laughs> How uh, is this possible? It's one of his... Uh, it's a great vocal performance. It is a great vocal performance. And, yeah. um, and, and he and Rick Moranis were grade school yeah. buddies. Yeah. Or at least went and to I grade think, school I together for like too. six, yeah. seven years. And so yeah. that's how he got roped into doing uh, something on the Bob and Doug McKenzie comedy album. But Take Off is well worth a listen and had to be mentioned during the show. <laughs> okay, everyone, like, this is me on the drums, oh, eh? get out. It is not. You're it not. is so. Stop I learn, will you? Take off, eh? Oh. Take off. I guess that brings us to, I mean, I want to pass through briefly. Uh, they put out another live album after this exit stage left. And I, and I constantly find myself thinking and, and, and saying here out loud, embarrassing myself perhaps by saying it, that, that when you think about Rush live, they're a better proposition even than Rush in the studio. I actually won't say it for the, this era of albums. I think it's just so impressive that, no, you got to get the albums, but, Exit stage left, despite the overdubs, despite the fact that it's been criticized by the band in subsequent years for like not having that live sound. There's a lot of, like, you know, they have a track, and then there's a fade out, and then there's another track. It doesn't have that really kind of organic concert feel. But man, I love this 
record. I just think that every single song they do is better. It's mostly focused on those last four albums, everything from A Farewell to Kings onward. But then they also like whip out like Beneath, Between, and Behind. And it's just murderously good. And they uh, throw in, uh, you know, a, a, this is a random instrumental by Alex, uh, like Bronze Bane or something like that. Um, this Brood, is the one Brood. that has that's that after drums. Terry Brown. Yeah, Brood's it Bane. has that YYYZ solo that's awesome. Um, this is a pretty good record, and I gotta say that if you're just like really kind of, uh, you know. Uh, this band, I don't know much about this band other than the radio hits. Where do I start? It's probably not a bad idea to start with those first two live albums. Yeah. And, you know, my for me, Jeff, that third side, and of course, I'm still thinking when we had albums, not CDs, but that third side of, of Brunsbane to the trees to Xanadu, uh, that that to me is pretty much perfection. Just the the beautiful segue from one song into the other, I think is gorgeous. Speaking of segues, uh, that brings us to uh, to Signals, uh, the next album in the Rush canon, which <clears throat> which which is a, is a bit of a shift from from moving pictures. Um, there's uh, much more of an emphasis on synth, whether it be synth bass or however Geddy is using it, uh, elect- electronic territory, and um, I'd say more texture than than power on on Signals has one of the better-known Rush songs in Subdivisions uh, for good reason. Subdivisions is a great, great song. Uh, this menacing kind of prog pop, uh, almost a drone quality in, in the synth riff that, that Getty Lee's playing. One of the ma- amazing things about Subdivisions is if you listen to Neil Peart drum on Subdivisions, in addition to writing the lyrics, of course, he then writes a completely different drum part for every verse in yes. subdivisions which is amazing and he i was reading an interview he said you know one of the one of the benefits about writing the lyrics is he knows um exactly where to put things i think part of that is uh, uh limelight for sure is one of the examples that stood out but on subdivisions too he knows where he can punch a lyric he knows where he can he knows exactly where he can play to best serve the lyrics that he's written as a lyricist. And that's absolutely true in Subdivisions, uh, a song about you know individuality, as is many of Russia's songs, but not conforming. And of course, in the, in the course of that, you have Neil Peart not conforming to any sort of uh, uh, normal time signature or beat to the song. He's changing all the time. There's some really good songs on Signals. This is a good, good album. 
Analog Kid. Uh, this uh, a little more upbeat, a little more warmth than than perhaps in in in, in previous uh, efforts. I really love Digital Man. Really love Digital Man. Uh, it's a song that is immediately accessible. Um, that uh, you know that that, that, that bass to, to start things off. Uh, and, and again, you hear a lot of police influence here. back very quickly which is listening to all this stuff you know back to back to back to back to back i was really surprised by how influenced they are by the police mm. uh yeah in virtually every way you know from, that starts coming through hugely on this record. yes uh you know from getty lee's bass playing to the way that alex lifeson sort of sort of plays a little more chop choppily if that's a word right. uh like like andy summers to some of the rhythms that, that Neil Peart begins to bring into these songs are very Stuart Copeland-esque. And even um, some of the arrangements become a little more sparse, uh, police-esque. We, we did a show with John Miller in this studio on The Police, and I remember saying at a time or two, this, the police song is so sparse, it's hardly a song. It's just, mm. And there right. are a few moments moving forward from Signals where you kind of get that, that feeling, too, on some Rush songs where... It's a very laid back, very sparse arrangement where you know it's, it's held together very loosely, and you hear that coming through a lot on, on signals. Um, I suppose it was inevitable, right? Because you know, like uh, how many high profile power trios in the new wave post punk era are there? Right? There was Rush, <laughs> and there was the Police, and that's basically it. You know, and the the the. The debt, I don't want to call it a debt, uh, the influence that the police influ- you know, obviously had upon Rush here, I, their, their producer apparently objected to it. Terry Brown was like, ah, this is too police-like. This is, I think, his last album as mm-hmm, producer. It is. Uh, and I, I, I disagree. I, I think this is, a, this is as, just as Scott said, I think this is... Maybe, I don't know, cause is it their second best album? It's certainly close. It's in the top three. This is the era where Rush is just fantastic. Uh, you know, we, one of the first shows we ever recorded on this uh, podcast was on Arcade Fire. And I have to say that uh, I've only heard it now in the past week, but Arcade Fire never recorded a better song about the suburbs <laughs> than Subdivisions, despite that the. You know, they actually released an album called The Suburbs <laughs> that won the Grammy for Best Album. Um, I love that last that last verse. Was it like drawn like moths? We drift into the city, the timeless old attraction, cruising for the action. Uh, and it's also interesting to just see that the band is never content to sit still you have this movement from like getty lee you know who's playing bass and singing and you know you'd think that would be enough for him but he's like no screw it i'm gonna play, i'm gonna become a keyboardist now 
I'm going to start suddenly playing synthesizers, and not only I'm going to play a few perfunctory synthesizers, synthesizers are going to be all over our music. And it works. That's the miracle. It shouldn't work. It shouldn't work when you just suddenly introduce a new element into a band dynamic. Uh, But it does work. This is actually the era where Rush was the best. Uh, I think people were saying to me, like, oh, Jeff, I'm really looking uh, looking forward to finding out what you think when Rush gets into their synthesizer era. This is the beginning of the quote-unquote synthesizer era for Rush. And I got to tell you, I like it. I really like it. I understand why Alex Lifeson was angry that, like, you know, his guitar was demoted to a secondary priority. Um, but I really think that, that this stuff works out well for them and doesn't miraculously doesn't sound too terribly dated, despite the fact that, you know, it's the 80s and everybody's, you know, you know, using synths and drum machines and, you know, doing cocaine and voting for Ronald Reagan. Um, this stuff actually doesn't sound dated at all. I think Signals is one of their best albums. I, you know, the analog kit, Scott already mentioned it. There's like a, this seems to be like a trio of songs. Like there's the analog kid, there's digital man, and then there's the new world man. I guess they were kind of doing it. The one I really love the most is losing it. Losing it's incredible. Yeah. Losing it is, 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 is actually, the violin this is, is just perfect. Is, this is the thing where I think to myself like, boy, Neil Peart really grew as a lyricist. You know, he, he's, he's talking about his own fears, right? And in fact, he retired uh, in 2016. I guess maybe he had gotten his diagnosis at that point. We don't know for sure. But he was saying that like they'd, they'd gone out on their last tour with Rush, and he's just like, ah, you know, it's just too hard for me to bring it anymore. I can't perform up to the level of quality that I want to. Um, losing It is a song where it starts with like you know, a dancer on the stage, a ballerina. She's losing her... She's losing her frantic pace and pain and desperation, her aching limbs and downcast face. What is it? They they glow with perspiration. It's actually, again, with that directness that characterized his style, incredibly moving and thoughtful. And I got to give, again, got to give credit to Getty Lee. This is the point where his vocals really start becoming great i think in my opinion they really start to serve the music that's my favorite song on the album despite all the other famous tracks subdivisions and whatnot Where the sun will rise no 
I, I like it all. You know, Subdivisions was one of those songs that helped me get through high school in all kinds of ways. And, and as you had talked about earlier, uh, Jeff, I was that nerd kid. I was a debater. I played Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I was not an athlete. Um, and that song really meant a lot to me. But, you know, things like The Analog Kid, uh, I think, has a very Ray Bradbury-esque kind of feel to it. And there's a real warmth there. And in losing it, of course, there's a warmth in that even in the kind of depressing aspect of someone not being able to perform in the way that that one once could and then to end it with countdown and have this kind of you know great victory in, in space flight i think the whole album works really really well Beginning of the uh, synth era, we have some thoughts from a contributor here in a little bit on on this era, uh, which continues. Uh, Grace Under Pressure, the uh, the, the next album. Uh, Steve Lillywhite, who's popped in on a number of these shows, was initially set to produce. He had to pull out. So Peter Henderson did some Super Tramp albums previously. Is the uh, producer on Grace Under Pressure? And uh, look, this is the '80s, and things always, you know, sound of the era. I will say, I think that. By and large, this, this these next three albums or so, yes, you can hear they're from the 80s, but they, they, they haven't aged all that poorly when compared to what other bands of the era were doing. Not at all. It's shocking to me. Yeah. By the way, you know, one of the things we might also point out is that Rush's work ethic is kind of ridiculous. How many years from 1974 to, uh, I guess, like uh, 1989, 1991, passed by without them releasing something new. They, they, they literally had this thing where they, they'd go record an album, they'd go on tour, they'd come off the road, they'd take a break for a couple of months, they'd go record another album. It's kind of ridiculous how much material they put out. <laughs> you know, of course, you know, in this age where you know it's a presidential administration length break between one album to the next album for a lot of artists, um, they managed to actually, in the 80s in particular, continue putting out one record every single year. And, uh, and this, I guess, will be the controversial part of um, another one of my hot takes for the guy who knows nothing about Rush and just discover them. I don't really think that their standards flagged. I, I think that, yeah, Moving Pictures is the best uh, Rush album of, of the, the 80s. But, man, I, I just – this stuff actually is good. I, I'm shocked at how much I didn't dislike Grace Under Pressure being warned – that like, oh, you're not going to like the power windows, grace under pressure, or hold your fire era. I'm like, actually, eh, this all works for me. 
Oh, that's interesting. Someone said that. I, for me, uh, Grace Under Pressure is a great album. I think that, that Neil Peart on that album does so well at explaining what the 1980s are about and gets to the heart of it with all the fears and the various things going on. And you can really, really feel on that album. Both Alex and Getty Lee were from children of one Holocaust survivor, the other a communist gulag survivor. And you can you can really feel that on side one of that album that uh, yeah, there's a lot of hell going on in the world right now. And these ideologies are very, very dangerous. And I think I think Peart and, and Lifeson and Lee, I mean, they do a great job of expressing that without it becoming cheesy or, or formulaic. Talk about I mean, the one that actually speaks to me is after image, which um, well, of course, and now, a- especially that Peart's passed away. Right. <laughs> Yeah, right. It's you know, you, you, the, the idea of the song is that they wrote. I think they wrote it for a friend who had right. had, them, had passed away, and you, you, the idea of it is like you know, like the impression that you make on your life, yeah. the impression that you make on others remains there almost as you know, as like a reflection in your your corneas and your lenses yeah. after you've gone. So well, and I actually said, "This is this is the moment, literally, where I thought to myself, like, well, you know, what, Getty Lee, pretty good singer, actually, yeah. man. He, yeah. He's yeah. really he's really delivering the power of his lyrics right. to me." Yeah, uh, Sean Hackbarth uh, writing in, senior editor at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and big Rush fan. Uh, let me defend Rush using keyboards. It's that era when I got into the band. If you're turned off by 80s music in general, I get why you wouldn't like the power windows and hold your fire. Uh, Getty and Alex, who wrote the music, treated synths like a symphony, adding textures and dynamics that couldn't be done otherwise. They made the power trio even more powerful. Synths gives subdivisions and the big money so much heft, you really see the symphonic quality on the Clockwork Angels live album where they included a string section. Yes, they drowned out Alex on Hold Your Fire, and so I understand why he wasn't happy with the direction they were going, but then they changed with Presto. These, uh, that, that's Sean Hackbarth, at Sean Hackbarth on, on Twitter. Uh, I, I think, uh, I, I like Distant Early Warning a lot from Grace Under Pressure, that, that first uh, song on that album. Uh, Power Windows of these three is probably my least favorite. Um, I think Marathon's very good, the highlight of that album. Hold Your Fire has... Uh, a couple of real nice highlights. Time Stands Still uh, with Amy Mann doing a uh, guest vocal. Um, man, that's about as good of a pop song as they could write. Uh, just a great hook from a pop perspective. And I mean, it, it's a new element to like the whole, like, what you understood as Rush up until that point. Yeah. Power trio, now they're in their synth phase. And then all of a sudden there's a female vocalist who's harmonizing. Harmonies, literally, up until this point, 
there were never any harmonies on any Rush song ever. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> that's a new thing. And she just does so well on that song. That's to me, at least on "Hold Your Fire," that's the best song for I by far. Oh, yeah. Except, except, except. Actually, you know what? I'm thinking about it again. I'm thinking "Prime Mover," maybe the one. Love "Prime, Prime Mover. Mover." I'm gonna have to talk about it. But you know what? We're getting ahead of ourselves. Do you have any thoughts on Power Windows? Because this is apparently one of the more controversial records, in, at least among Rush nerd fans who have been pelting me with DMs over the last week uh, in their discography. I love it uh, in large part because I think Getty's bass work, both on Power Windows as well as on Hold Your Fire, is just outstanding. I think on Hold Your Fire, he feels like a jazz fusionist in the way that he's playing. And I, I think there are very different textures to those. Neil's lyrics on uh, on Power Windows are very clever. I think they're probably the most clever of any of his lyrics. He's playing with words, uh, thinking about ideas and how they mix words and ideas. And I think on Hold Your Fire, there's some real sincerity there. I mean, there always is. Rush is nothing if not earnest. <laughs> but on Hold Your Fire, you, you get his trip through China. And I think there's just a lot going on there. Prime Mover you know, basically explains Aristotle probably better than most <laughs> Aristotelian philosophers can explain him. Uh, I think there's some really good stuff on both of those albums. And again, that earnestness just comes through on, on both. The one thing I'll say quickly on Power Windows, why it might be my least favorite of the three. Um, a lot of the, I don't know, say the excitement, but like the, the punches on Power Windows aren't necessarily because of something really neat that Alex is playing on the guitar mm -hmm. or Neil's drum fill. It's it's like a it's like a, a you know a horn synth or Alex has at times this really echoey chimey like these guitar splashes that come in that I, I'm not sure are as organic as I would like to. I mean, again, it's 1985. This is everywhere in terms of the, the production <laughs> style. I understand it. But of the three, I think that's that's the album that perhaps has, has the has the most reliance on those things. Okay, Scott, I'm laughing because I'm looking at my notes and like, what, is, what did I actually write down? I said, the guitar tone on Emotion Detector yeah. sounds uncomfortably close to the ringtone on my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> Which wow. is a lot about how 80s we're getting wow. here. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, I understand that. You you know, it's I, I'm I'm older than you too, so you guys would not remember this, but Power Windows was huge on album rock radio, and uh, in particular, it was absolutely huge on MTV mm. with uh, with Big Money. And I, even to this day, when I listen to the album, I always start with the second song because. I just heard big money so often when I was a kid <laughs> that it, it just become, it, it, it's just why it's like a commercial in my head that I don't want to hear. Big money, 
burned out even on your favorite stuff. Yeah, yeah it's the only Rush song I'm burned out on, but yeah. it is one. Yeah. I mean, I gotta say, I really like Power Windows. I mean, I, I get the I get the '80s criticisms, the genericism of it, and uh, I actually. And you know, listen, I'm I'm a big fan of like eighties era Genesis, right? I'm Patrick Bateman practically. <laughs> I um I, I I think Manhattan Project is a really huge highlight. Of course they're sounding more and more like the police, but it's like a version of the police that even the police didn't often use. It's like synchronicity two era style police. Um but I also really like Marathon. There's that instrumental oh, yeah. break. Yeah, absolutely. We're, you know, we're, we're, you know, who says there isn't enough guitar on these albums? There's guitars everywhere. There's strings. There's even a faux chorale effect there. And then uh, territories. Territories. Yes. Territories. Territories. Wordplay is amazing. Neil, Neil, so on the nose with his lyrics. Oh, I, lo- I think his wordplay is incredible on that. I think it's. I think it's fun. I love that yeah. song. There's that great hook at the end where he's like, "In different circles, we keep holding our ground. In different circles, we keep spinning round and round." That really is a great musical moment on that album. Now, if you guys are talking about "Hold Your Fire," the only thought i have about this and again this is the era where people who were like super rush fans were coming to me and saying like, yeah or there be dragons watch out <laughs> you, you might not like this stuff and it just turns out i really actually prefer this i think the 80s were so much better for rush than the 70s you know um prime mover oh that's 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 where getty lee is so great not only on the synths which of course overwhelmed the sound of it but on the bass that that incredibly, you know, uh, dexterous, blibbity bloobity bass oh, opening fusion. to the song. <laughs> it's incredible. But then also, there's the Morse code, bleepity bloop synth patterns during what was the line? You know, the point of ignition to the final drive, the point of the journey is not to arrive. Again, Neil, with a great, great lyric that actually, you know, again, very straightforward, but you know what? Not cliche. I, I, I tip my cap. Respect oh, very you, nice. Mr. Pierce. I 
really think Prime Mover is the best song on Hold Your Fire. And I guess I don't understand why this era of Rush is hated. But then again, I wouldn't because I've never been a long-standing Rush fan. And I, I didn't live and die with them the way a lot of other people did. Yeah, I stuck with them. They never, it, it never got to me. I guess I just kind of grew with them at the time and accepted what they were doing. And uh, in large part because the lyrics meant so much to me. But yeah, even, and I, I'm a progger too. I mean, I'm a hardcore <laughs> progger. But uh, I just thought what they were doing was fascinating. And, and now we get to the era where everybody is going to argue with everyone, or maybe we'll all agree. We don't even know going in. This is the post synth era. Presto. I got to tell you guys, I don't like this album. I know what they're doing. They're trying to return the guitars back to the mix. They're trying to like retreat, I suppose, from the synth heavy era. But uh, I, I, I'd, I'd, like, I'd like Show Don't Tell, the first song on the album. I guess they, they do that thing where they try to open with the best song. But the rest of this, it, it feels far too generic for me. Um, then again, you know, maybe I'll listen to it for 15 years, and then 15 <laughs> years on, I'll say, like, oh, Presto is secretly the greatest and most underrated <laughs> Rush album ever. I, I, For me, Presto and Roll the Bones and Counterparts are the weakest part of... And, and I don't think they're bad. I think they're very good. I just don't think that they're as... I don't think they stand up as well as Rush's other work. And it's clear that they're trying to imitate grunge on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they play around with uh, with hip-hop and rap for a little bit. And uh, I appreciate what they're doing. And I think there's some gorgeous moments on all of the albums. But they definitely don't hang to, uh, together as well. As You want to know something hilarious, do. Brad? Uh, my brother bought the only Rush album that ever entered our household okay. when I was a child. He bought Roll the Bones because he saw the cover of the album and he thought it would be like Megadeth's Countdown to Extinction because it has the same kind of vibe. It does have a cool cover. I agree. It, it, it's actually like one of their best covers. It is a cool cover, yeah. But it, it's a terrible album. Yeah, Just yeah. Just a terrible album. I, I won't say it's terrible, but it doesn't do a lot for me. I, I, I mean, yeah, there are moments on it. There are moments, you know, like... There, you know, I don't want to hear Geddy Lee rapping, right? But br I do. Bravado, actually... bravado is very good. I will yeah. make a case. Bravado, for bravado. is the one I was going to say.
I like Red Tide. I yeah. mean, I think there are a couple of really good songs, um, some beautiful moments on it. But yeah, overall, I think I think it's it's rough. Bravado has uh, Lifeson playing almost a, a, like an edge U uh, two like guitar. Oh, yeah tone and uh it's about as close i guess to maybe a power ballad as you'll get from the band it's kind of a go out swinging kind of set of lyrics from from neil peart but roll of bones is weird because i remember it being massive like really really oh, yeah. big and yeah, I go back that, and listen that, now that one and, made an ugh. impression on me as i was a kid and again never listened into the rush but man you saw that album cover it was featured in record stores yeah it was big I mean, listen, I, I think this is the the most fallow era of the band's career. I don't like counterparts in the slightest bit. Um, Test for Echo has the title track, which I think is actually great. I think Test for Echo, the title song, is really good. Uh, but then the rest of it, I, I, I feels like they're, they're in a stall, right? I, nothing about it uh, really sounds to me like anything different than what they had been doing before. And of course... The, the thing that you find out about Rush is you start listening to them and you go through the discography is that this is a band that evolved and try to keep current. Um, the, the musical ideas do not resonate with me on this one. Uh, the one where I think they actually kind of got it back was Vapor Trails. So oh, I don't definitely. know if you guys have any different definitely. opinion. I, I think Counterparts is not that uh, really of, of, of this uh, era. Between Sun and Moon, uh, that's a great, uh, great song. A lot of meat on the bones of uh, Between Sun and Moon. Um, Stick it out's okay. I, I think Animate's got a, a Animate's great groove, got some, especially real, live. Animate's yep. very good. Real soaring chorus to that. Good. I didn't didn't love Test for Echo. Uh, Vapor Trails is well. I'm gonna let Brad tell a little bit what happened here because Vapor Trails says you know there's a backstory to how how right. we even had more Rush at that point. Yeah, you know? it was a tragedy. Yeah, so, go for it. Well, you know there are a couple of things going on. So first of all, in the the 1990s, Neil decided to completely relearn his drum style and adopted a much more big band drum style in the way that he's going to approach. So you see that on Test for Echo, but also on the last three albums after that but I think there's a big break after Test for Echo because of the personal tragedy in Neil's life I mean, he loses you know very quickly he loses his daughter who's 19 years old in a car wreck and then within a year after that his wife succumbs to cancer and Neil is very open about this he thinks that she kind of just gave up um, that she just didn't have the will to live after the daughter died. And once both of them are gone, you know, Neil goes on a, a 
a 12 to 14 month motorcycle ride across all of North America to find himself again. And it, it is really difficult when he comes back to vapor trails in 2001 and 2002. Yeah, he's not sure. He hasn't been playing drums. He hasn't been writing lyrics. Uh, his life has been a mess. But he's also met somebody. He's fallen in love again, um, found real purpose in life. And I, I think a lot of what Vapor Trails is, I think it brings together all the best of what Rush had been experimenting with on those previous albums that were kind of hit and miss. I mean, everything from Presto all the way up to Test uh, for Echo uh, really brings them together. And it becomes, I wouldn't call Vapor Trails a prog album, but it's an extremely good rock album with very prog elements. I do think the two final albums from Rush are very progish, uh, but I think leading up to that, we're still kind of evolving. Uh, but Vapor Trails is that, as, as all of the guys said, it's a it's a reclamation of life. It's basically saying we're still here, um, and Neil especially. It's kind of a huge shock that they you know late so late in their career. Yes, yeah, thirty years in the career. They're like, hey, you know what? Yeah, yeah, I'm alive, and, and they could still put out an album that was that interesting. I guess because at this point they had no longer decided that they had to care about what trends were. That's right. Like, well, what are the trends now? Like, it's like hip hop and like yeah. sampling, and they're like. Rush is never going to be sampling people, right? right? So they just said, screw it. We're going to like make music and you well, know, we're going to just be friends and hang out and do what we want to do. And it works. This is their best late period album. And it's, it's, it's a, a shock to me because like I had been listening through the discography and I was like, yeah, diminishing returns, diminishing returns, diminishing returns, six year hiatus. Boom. Wow. I really, really love like uh, Secret Touch. Oh, yeah. I really love Earthshine. Earthshine is an incredible song. Earthshine is song. amazing. So like, boom! They came out of nowhere, and it was it was yeah yeah. There's still life in the old dogs. Yeah, even the lyrics of Earthshine, right? I mean, that's the the song itself has so much power to it. But the lyrics, this is where I think Neil shows what a great lyricist he is. Where the the lyrics match exactly the music, and the music matches the lyrics. And around this time too, they start working with a, a producer who did some work with Foo Fighters and Velvet Revolver, and um, encourage them to sort of acknowledge their legacy, right? I mean, Rush is a band, as we've hopefully chronicled, that was unafraid of change uh, or to take advantage of, of you know, technology or, or new, new instrumentation, adding all along the way. And at this point in the career, you know, around Snakes and Arrows, 2007, 
take a look back and just say, we did some good stuff. We could. It's okay to sound like that again. It's okay to sound like this thing we were before. Yeah. Um, and I think Snakes and Arrows, Snakes and Arrows is my favorite of these these final three. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think there's a general consensus that that this really is. I mean, they left on a, on a real high note with with Clockwork uh, Angels and, and Snakes and Arrows too. Yeah, I, I like all three actually. I mean, I think they're all just fantastic. I listen to them all the time. Uh, Snakes and Arrows to me is controlled anger. So much rage in the lyrics of those, especially you know, from the Middle East to the Middle West, and right. and and I love it. I think it works. I think this is uh, Neil's righteous anger works. It doesn't sound preachy as much as it, it is truly angry, but it's so poetic in the way that he presents it. And I think even songs like Spindrift, you know, which just about a natural phenomena. I mean, he just gets it. There, there's some great stuff. The main monkey business. As an the angriest, by the way, the angriest lyrics on this album are the main monkey business and malignant narcissism, um, which, of course, are <laughs> for those who don't know, they're instrumentals. Nice. But, it, but you know, like, yeah, like, they're actually, like, very angry. There's, there's, a, there's a, there's, it's shocking, again, for somebody who knew nothing about this band to find these people there. What are they, in their 60s at this point? Yeah. You know, I mean... They still uh, late, have late 50s, ambition, right? yeah. you know? Yeah. It's shocking. Yeah, they would have been in their late 50s at this point. Late 50s, yeah. yeah but, like, you know, the old men, especially <laughs> in the in terms of the rock world. Yeah. Yeah, now, now watch it, Jeff. But, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, well, hey. Listen, I was born in 1980. I'm already an old man now. I'm, now, I'm, 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 I'm a year away from 40. You are not. Basically I was dead. born in 67. You're not old. <laughs> <laughs> Brad, Brad, do you want to say a bit about Clockwork Angels? It's the, it's the sure. final Rush studio album, and it's the the only one that's a true concept yeah. album. There, yeah. There's a lot of preparation and work and planning into how this was all going to be pulled off from many different right. many different angles. After all these years of prog epics from Rush, from Cygnus to Twenty One Twelve to the Necromancer, uh, finally they actually bite the bullet and put out a prog album it's hilarious <laughs> like yes our last album well you know smoke them while you got them. that's why they decided to do it yeah it's uh, i i think it's a masterpiece i love it uh, i think the whole story holds together i've read the clockwork angels novel that neil wrote with kevin anderson and the follow-up to it clockwork lives uh, there have been a couple of different things i think it's one of those i mean it's a story that is still very rush uh, it's about a, a young man from a small town who makes it big after kind of realizing who he is. It's the same story as Hemispheres, but not cheesy, right, <laughs> Jeff? Um, it's done in a kind of Ray Bradbury-esque, G.K. Chesterton way. It's kind of a, a fairy tale, uh, but it works. And there's still anger on it. The Anarchist is an angry song. Um, there are a couple of different things on it that I think really show what Rush was capable of. But here again, you've got a producer 
who I think just really brought the best out of them and just challenged them to to be what they are and to kind of, you know, not to be somebody else, but to, to show what they've done, not to repeat what they've done, but to perfect it in some way. And I, I think it's, I would call it a pretty perfect album. I, I think it's as good as, as moving pictures, but in a very different way. The lenses inside of me. this is one of those records where like uh, uh i one of our correspondents will collier said like you know you know maybe the thing that didn't his theory at least his opinion is that like you know maybe the mistake that rush made in the last years of their career was hiring a super fan to produce them <laughs> uh because he thinks that like you know you know the, the, he didn't do them any favors by not reigning in their self-indulgence but here's the funny thing is that like once i finally got to this album I, I I was shocked at how much I liked it. Yeah, the anarchist, as you singled out, that's a good song. It is. <laughs> I don't these songs have no right to be as interesting as they are. <laughs> and again, the album is too long. It's an hour long. I you know these last listen, few are right around that length. Yeah, if you've listened to this podcast before, then you know I have long <laughs> praised uh, albums that are like 25 minutes long because ah brevity and I've railed against ones that are overstuffed the CD era does no one ever any favors so I would remove a couple of songs from this but uh, this is Rush in 2012 yep. and they still they still seem amazing and I am shocked again remember keep in mind i will keep emphasizing i'm the guy who had never heard them until last week hmm. uh the consistency actually this so not even consistency uh, it's like a plane that that doesn't does a, a sharp nose dive you know it's heading towards the ground you think oh god they're gonna hit the mountain and all of a sudden it, it pulls up out of the tailspin and it starts soaring again uh, they ended on a high note yes and they that's, did that's something really impressive to say about this band uh, before we wrap up, we've got maybe a, a minute or two here, Brad. If, if you wanted to talk, as we mentioned, we're doing this episode, and Jeff was, uh, you know, uh, coerced into listening to Rush uh, <laughs> because of the, the death of Neil Peart, the, the great drummer and lyricist of, of Rush. You want to just talk a little bit about, you know, his, I mean, not his, not his death, death, but what that means and, and, and his legacy and, and as we sort of close things up? You know, it's funny because when I was a kid, uh, I mean, certainly there were a lot of us who loved Rush, but as as you both have pointed out, we were the odd 
kids, uh, very odd kids. And I think there was always, you know, we were never the cool kids. Um, and I think that was generally true back in the 80s of anyone who loved Rush. I'm sure it was especially true in the 70s. Uh, you know, by the 90s, there you've got a, a lot of people my age who weren't so happy with what they were doing. And then, of course, they come back um, and they do such a great job. And I think they were always consistent. But within that consistency, there were levels of, of excellence versus levels of excellence, right? And uh, I think those last three albums really shine. But what Rush always did, and I, I think it's you know, Neil as one of the three main, but the lyricist, they just, they never really, they never compromised on the things that really mattered. I think they spoke and tried to speak to other musicians at the time, to the art world at the time, but they always held their own mm -hmm. and they were resented for that. I mean, there were people in the music industry in the 70s and 80s who hated them because, of course, they did their own thing and they, they didn't play the games that other people were playing. And, you know, as soon as Rush could, they left their original record company, they went to a better record company, and then when they could, they went off on their own and formed their own label. And, you know, I think that's just kind of, it, it says a lot about who they are are uh, the, that willingness to always even when they messed up to strive for something great not to bow just to the whims of the marketplace or to the whims of the populace but to do something that would be timeless and neil represents that and what shocked me and i'm, I'm happy and i'm really happy but i'm shocked as well is how much of an outpouring there has been about neil's death and the sadness of that because i don't think neil ever would have expected this mm -hmm. at all not just because of his personality but also just because no one really expressed it when he was alive i mean people like paul rudd and others did but yeah. they're always these you know they're also idiosyncratic individuals who are doing this and i i think neil would be utterly overwhelmed um, to the point where he probably couldn't even really handle it, but to realize, you know, that these signs are going up everywhere and people are doing tributes, and you know, it's not it's not just the weirdos. Uh, there's a whole generation or two of us who realize this guy meant everything to us, and maybe we didn't express it as well as we should have when he was alive, uh, partly because he didn't like it, he didn't like that kind of attention. But I, I think it's great. I'm I'm very proud. I actually think this is a a great cultural moment. I'm sorry he's passed away. I'm sorry for his wife and his friends and his daughter. But just the fact that there's so much outpouring of admiration for him, I think says something very strong about our culture right now. Hey, you know, even people who were radically opposed to the idea of Rush, like me, are actually acknowledging the greatness of this band and of Neil Peart. So that, I, I think, indeed does say something. <laughs> As we land this plane, we come to the part of the episode where all of us give uh, you, the listener, two albums that you should own and five songs you need to hear from our band. This is nearly an impossible task as we go across 40-plus years and 20 studio albums and almost 200 songs with a massive uh, fan and admirer like Brad Berzer from Hillsdale College and uh, the Manjative Conservative. But we turn it over to our guest first. Brad, if you may, two albums that you think people should have, five songs they have to hear from this collection. Okay, so the, do the five songs have to be from these albums? They do so not. They can be, they can be okay. totally different. Yeah. So and I, for any reason whatsoever. 
Yes. So I, I would say the two albums that are absolute for any Rush, for anyone who wants to listen to Rush, uh, whether you're new to it or whether you've been listening for a long time, I think Moving Pictures and uh, maybe strangely enough, that one's probably not controversial. <laughs> but I would also say Clockwork Angels because of the, the coherence of the story and the final statement. And to jump from 1981 to 2012, I think really, really does matter. In terms of songs, this one's really hard because I think there are so many great songs. <laughs> uh, but I would say uh, 2112, even though it's a, a, an 18 minute song, I think is really, really important. Earthshine, uh, because of, of their later rock songs, I think it's such a strong song overall. Again, that mixing of lyrics and music. Subdivisions uh, is really important because of how, at least for me, how much it gave me strength as a kid to kind of do my own thing. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I would be at Hillsdale. I don't think I'd be a historian. I don't think I'd be who I am uh, without that song, and I, I don't think I'm over-speaking. Uh, Prime Mover on Hold Your Fire because it is a song that mixes philosophy so beautifully with rock music. And, you know, again, maybe strangely, um, natural science mm -hmm. off of permanent waves because, again, I think it, it does such a great job of giving us ideas. But there's a, there's a stoicism, and I mean that in a small s as well as a capital S. There's a stoicism about the meaning of integrity and in natural science that's just hard to find in most pop culture. Uh, I would uh, say moving pictures as well. It's just hard to find a, a flaw in an album like that. Highly influential with already songs people know. And the other one, I mean, this is a band that's gone for so long and, and moved through so many different styles, so you can't cover everything. But I'd say 2112 is a good place to start, too, uh, you know, from the, from the early years and, 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 and that, that era uh, of the band. My list of five songs starts with 2112 as well, the song. Uh, Jeff can tell you I'm not, I'm not the biggest prog rock guy in the neighborhood, but, uh, man, do I love 2112. Uh, Spirit of Radio, talked about the reasons for that earlier. Probably stealing one from Jeff here based on previous comments, but uh, Entre New is a phenomenal song from that same album. And then just to kind of spread the years a little bit, I think Digital Man is a, is a good one to put on the list. And, um, and from the late 80s, or at least mid to late 80s, uh, Time Stands Still um, is about as, as good of a pop mm. song that you'll get from Rush. It's just a really well, well put together pop song. So that'll make my list of five as well. Over to you, Jeff. Well, if I'm cheating, then I would just say <laughs> start with all the worlds a stage and then get exit stage left. Haha, hmm. <laughs> stage, stage, stage. Yes, the live albums really do function as uh, wonderful documents of all the greatest bits of the Rush discography. But if we're going to actual studio albums, um, I'm going to be brutal, and I'm going to exclude the early part of Rush's career, and I'm going to say that the, the two ones that you have to own are moving pictures and signals, and that the difficulty there was for me is is excluding permanent waves mm -hmm. and power windows. So they're all they're all actually, again, just shocked like a guy who knew knew literally, you know diddly dick about this group until <laughs> last week like these are all great albums um but yeah moving pictures and signals that that early 80s uh 
you know, era for Rush is just fantastic. And uh, if I'm going to name my five songs, I'll start with uh, one from their early career, Anthem. It's off of Fly By Night. Uh, you know, this is, you know, <laughs> this is Neil at his most Randian. Uh, this is Getty at his most uh, Robert Plantian. This is Alex Lifeson as mo- at his most Jimmy Pageian. Yeah, and it, it works. Every single second of that song works. The chorus is indelible. I literally woke up last morning <laughs> with the... Like, did you boom, 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 boom. The rhythm in my head. It's just so good. Uh, but then I'm going to move on to their 80s era. And I'm going to say Anshay New as Scott correctly predicted. Uh, I, that's one of my five from Permanent Waves. Limelight. Again, just a wonderful reflection on how weird it feels to be in there in the public eye and having people come up to you and say like, oh, I'm your biggest fan. I love you. I know everything about you. And you're like, but I don't know you and I don't understand you. And this is very, very disconcerting. Uh, Losing it from signals again actually touching uh you know talking about the feeling that you're you've lost your best you've lost your fastball you're not as good as you were you're you're not as good as you're ever going to be and then i guess uh if i'm going to throw in a fifth one i'll uh, i'll pull a wild card and i'll say territories from power windows i really do think that the uh the the instrumental work on that song and actually uh, it just generally praise the album in general it, it's um regarded as the very synthy the height of the synthy 80s rush era but i have to say it doesn't affect me in any way i really enjoy this i really enjoy territories and i really enjoy the last half of that song in particular those are the five that i would pick. they shoot without shame Political Beats look at the music and career of Rush. We say thank you to our guest, Russell Amos Kirk, Chair in American Studies and Professor of History at Hillsdale College, co-founder, senior contributor to the imaginative conservative, author of a number of books, including Neil Peart, Cultural Repercussions, bradberzer.com or at Bradley Berzer on Twitter. Dr. Brad Berzer, thank you so much for joining us and lending your knowledge to the show today. We appreciate it. I love talking with you guys. Thank you. Meant a lot. Thank you so much. Jeff. 
good show, and you finally got the chance to hear some Rush, which is all anyone listening to the show is in, is concerned about. I'm actually appalled that I finally had to break my vows, my monastic vows. Uh, I swore a vow that I would never listen to Rush, and then Neil Peart had the bad taste to go and die on me. But I'm actually glad that I did. You can find Jeff online at Esoteric CD. My name is Scott Bertram, at Scott Bertram on Twitter. We want to thank, too, Tim Murtaugh, Will Collier, Sean Hackbarth, Jeff DeFore for their contributions to uh, the program. We, we couldn't read, you know, everything they wrote, but, but I mean, we did read it, but we couldn't read it all on the show. Uh, they helped influence uh, this program very much as well. Thanks to all four of those guys for their uh, thoughts and reflections on Rush. Hey, subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Listen and leave reviews, please. You can also find us on Twitter. Maybe we can badger Jeff into listening to another new band. At political underscore beats, at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Scott, I'm going to tell you right now, no matter how much you badger me, I will not listen to Color Me Bad. (laughs) Well, a man can dream, can't he? Goodbye.